We'll have some more worship a little bit later. Um, but today is kind of a uh, a bittersweet kind of thing because it'll be 29 weeks ago that we started this series on the life of David. Today is the last one in that series. I'm Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at the Garden. And it's been a very uh, enlightening series for me. It's been fun to go back and look at my journal entries as I've gone through and done this series and share them with you. And so I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to close out today. But we've talked about David and we've seen a lot of stuff. And I figured the best way to explain David's life is the power of David's. Now I know what you're thinking. Maybe I don't. <laughs> Either way, I know that the word nakedness is a scary one for us, both physically, right? At least if you read it's scary. But it's also scary emotionally and spiritually. Nakedness is a very scary word. We like to be clothed, not just with physical clothes, but we like to be clothed with church clothes and spiritual clothes and Presbyterian-type clothes. We like to be clothed at work, and I'm not talking about your work clothes. I'm talking about the way we like to cover up who we really are. We like to be covered up even in our small group settings. We like to be covered up with our friends. Every once in a while, you get a really good friend that you can truly be naked with. I know that sounds funny. <laughs> it does Let's <laughs> rewind and start all the sermon. Let me read this passage to you. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. The time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. Then he died at a good age, full of days, riches, and honor. And Solomon his son reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David from the first to the last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer, with the accounts of all his rule and his might, and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel, and upon all the kingdoms of his countries. And so this is kind of where we end with David's reign. We've seen quite a bit of his life because, you know, I wanted to kind of bring things to, to a close a little bit before Easter, but there's other things that happened in David's life you can read about, about the census that he took and how that was a sinful thing and that had consequences and, and how actually his sin of performing this census is what caused him to buy a threshing floor to do a sacrifice to God that ultimately would become the foundation for the temple now. Pretty amazing story. You can read that in 2 Samuel 23 and 24. Today we went to 1 Chronicles 28 and 29 because in Chronicles you really do have, as you see listed in this passage, you have like parallel passages about the life of David and the story of what happened. <coughs> but what we've seen David do <coughs> me, during this time, we've seen him start as a shepherd. We saw him as a hunter, as a warrior, as a general. We saw him as a great king. We saw him as a poet and songwriter. We saw him as a champion over Goliath. We saw him as an outlaw. We saw him as a ladies' man. We saw him as a musician. We saw him as a prophet. We saw him as a worship leader. We saw him as an adulterer. We saw him as a murderer. 
We saw him as a brother, as a husband, as a son. We saw him as a parent, and not a good one, I might add. We saw him as a leader. We saw him as a hero. We saw him as a builder. We saw him as an ancestor of Jesus Christ. But the most important thing we saw him was as a man of God. And we also wonder, how is that even possible? I mean, we learned a lot of concepts in this series about David. I just wanted to go through a couple of them. We saw that God and man see people differently from the beginning and the middle and the end. Even when we were certain judgment was sure on David, we saw what? God did mercy and grace. We saw God choose David instead of his older, taller brother. We saw God enable David to have skills that soothed others. Remember the harp, the harp he played before Saul? We saw God emboldened David against Goliath because he knew God had called him to that task. We saw God protect him from Saul on multiple occasions. We saw David teach us how to thrive spiritually while living in a dark cave or in the wildernesses of life. We saw David teach us the importance of having truth pinned to our hearts. David taught us how to recognize the danger of our own sinfulness and to pray for protection from it. Remember the story about Nabal and his vineyard. We even saw a man of God sometimes flee to the people of wickedness for safety. Remember when he went to the Philistines? <clears throat> we saw that mercy that David got and that we get is never deserved. We saw that no matter how tough it gets, if you are one that God has called, all things work together for your salvation. We learned what it meant to truly face your own wickedness and how God loves a transparent, broken, humble heart. We learned that true worship cannot be constrained by liturgy, but must flow from vulnerability and transparency and embarrassing humility. We learned that God is capable of loving even the crappiest of families, didn't we? We learn that sometimes when our sinfulness is revealed to us, those are often the sweetest times with our heavenly dad, right? Those times that we can bask and swim in his mercy and grace. We learn that we must face our dysfunction and realize it's everywhere in our lives. We learn the value of the wilderness and how it is the birthplace of compassion for others. But more than anything else, we learned how ridiculous God's grace is on David. So now let's address the elephant in the room if we can for just a moment. You know, there's so much about him that you wouldn't normally expect to find written about a great king, right? So much of this stuff should be glossed over, hidden, covered up. But in the Bible, we get a really blunt naked look at David's life, don't we? So here's the question. Are any of you as encouraged as I am at how sinful David was? Be real with me. Do you find comfort in the fact that David was really bad? 
Thank you. <laughs> I find so much comfort and joy that a man considered after God's own heart was so corrupt. I find in a very strange way all of a sudden a vibrant, real, raw, impactful relationship with Heavenly Dad is actually quite That it's not based upon how good I look in front of you up here each week. It's not based upon whether or not I'm a good husband or a bad husband to my wife. And I want to be a good husband, don't get me wrong, but I often am not. It's not based upon whether or not you think I'm a godly driver. <laughs> There's a lot of comfort there. If we are so blessed by David's nakedness, is it possible that others around us might be blessed by ours? Now, I'm not talking about being shameless or glorifying your sin. That's not what I mean. And don't come away from here thinking, well, Pastor Joe says we can sin and tell people about it. <laughs> no, you will sin whether you want to or not. That's the point. But I have learned, even in my experience in ministry, to adults and to students, that letting people see my flaws in the light of God's grace and mercy that is showered over them has been the most powerful message that I can offer. This is why I let you see my journal entries every week during this series, because I wanted you to understand something. It's not my knowledge from all my silly, stupid college and seminary degrees. By the way, I have four of them, and they mean nothing. Seriously. It's not my years of experience. I have 29 of those. They mean nothing. It's not my public, it's not my polished public persona. No laughing. I said no laughing. It's that God has enabled us to be in tune with just how desperately we need his grace and his mercy. And it's a willingness to tell those that God gives us the privilege of shepherding about that desperation. Now, when we remember David, I want us not to remember first thing about Goliath. I don't want us to remember the Philistines and all the great victories. I want us to be thankful that we know so many disgusting details about his sin. That's what I want you to remember about the life of David. And we also know so much about how God's mercy cleansed those sins and how God's mercy transformed those sins into something that worked out for our benefit. What? You guys remember the first time someone was naked before God because of their sin? Adam said this. 
I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. When we look back on that, we think, oh, silly Adam. You know you can't hide yourself from God. We do that every day. And I will tell you, if there ever comes a time in your life where you spiritually feel it's dry, maybe you feel like you're not connected to the Father, maybe you feel like you're really not in tune with what God is doing in and around you, I submit to you, it very well could, it's not because you have sin in your life, guess what, you always have sin. And any theology that teaches you you can live a life without sin in your life is heresy. Because we are sinful. We are by nature naturally depraved, except for when God's mercy and grace intervenes in our life. But it could be that when you feel disconnected from the Father, it very well could be that you are wearing too many clothes. Your robes are too thick. The act you're putting on is a little bit overdone. Adam, in the midst of being naked before God because of his sin, turned to some big leaves. Not going to work, dude. Because what happens is, when we think that we can clothe ourselves and shield who we really are from those around us and from God, we are actually putting confidence in our own abilities to be godly. I've shared this verse with you a few times during this series. We are the, of the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason to have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul was saying, if any of you think that you have confidence in being spiritual and holy and godly and having good clothes on, I have a better resume than you. And Paul's saying, even with my great resume, I know I'm terrible. I have no confidence in the flesh. So the first thing we do, if we approach God with zero confidence in the flesh, it gives us the freedom to approach God with a powerful nakedness, saying, God, here I am. That's what David did. Because you know what happens? If you truly are reading and studying and understanding God's word on a consistent basis, watch what it does. Where the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit and of the joints and of the marrow. By the way, does not that sound bloody? For the word of God is quick and active, but it stops at the shirt because the shirt is too rough for it to cover. For the word of God is active and powerful, but if you're wearing blue jeans, it really can't help. No, what it's saying is it doesn't matter what clothes you put on. The word of God is active and sharp and powerful. Active and sharp. You know what that means? Here's the image the daughter Hebrews is getting. It's sawing away. Piercing the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow. He gives this great image and picture about how there is nothing that you can put on 
nothing that you can do, nothing that you can say that will stop the word of God from showing all there. Discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If God's word is active in your life, it spends a lot of its time exposing you. If God's word is not active in your life, then you spend a lot of time clothed. And you probably look very good to man. But remember the first lesson we learned? Man looks where? On the outward. And God looks on the nakedness, on the heart. You see, God's mercy takes something that was shameful for Adam and he turns it into the character trait that he values more than anything else. That's why David and Peter in the New Testament both said that a broken and a humble spirit is what God values more than anything else. That phrase is in Scripture about seven or eight times. He values a broken, humble, transparent, vulnerable, naked spirit more than anything. Matter of fact, David said, you're not delighted in sacrifice. Or else I get it. You do not delight in religion. That would be my calling card. But the sacrifices that God loves are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. So how do we end this series on David? What do I want you to take away from it? First of all, it's okay. I give you pastoral permission to be comforted that David was a sinner. Because look, let me tell you, the story went another way, and there's this story of David, this king that God blessed, and he never made any mistakes. Boy, Christianity is sad. Because it wouldn't be about mercy. It's okay to be comforted. The day would, there's a reason why God revealed it all in his word. The second thing I want you to do is be inspired that David was naked about his sin. He was transparent. He was vulnerable. And then the last thing I want you to do is I want you to be made whole. Be comforted. Be inspired by the nakedness. And be made whole by the gift of faith and mercy that God imparts to those that are humble and broken. For that is what he loves more than your religion, your biblical knowledge. He loves it more than your consistency or your position in the church or your position in this world or your position in the office. Even if you are a king of God's chosen people, what he likes more is a broken heart. Because being a king isn't what makes David so powerful in my life. Being a king isn't what makes David so powerful in your life. It's his spiritual nakedness that inspires us the most. In my heart, 
As we kind of close up this series, my, my, my pastoral desire for you would be that we begin to develop a new character trait in our congregation. One that when people say, well, you know, the garden, this and that, and whatever, you know. But I'll tell you, the people there are vulnerable. The people there are transparent. I had a young person who was a senior in high school at the time. He's still one of my best friends. He said, Joe, do you know why you've been effective with students like me? And I said, why? I thought he was going to tell me how a great speaker I am. You're a dynamic communicator, Joe. You're great at playing guitar. You dress well. <laughs> he said, because here's the way I would describe you as a pastor. Your life is a clear glass. And inside it is everything that you are. While most other people have a plastic glass that's colored and you can't see what's in it. And when he told me that, it made me realize that the best way to encourage people to learn more about Heavenly Dad is to let them see just how much you need him. Not, oh, I really needed him when I was a sinner and then God saved me and now I'm good enough. I need him every day. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my mind. And please, God, see if there's any wicked way in me that keeps me from following you. God, make me naked. Because I'm telling you now, the power of your nakedness is what will impact the people in your community, in your family, in your neighborhood, being transformed and vulnerable. Because that's why David's life encouraged you so much, is it not? Because he was naked before God. Take your clothes off. Be transparent. Be vulnerable. And embrace the powerful nakedness that God's mercy and grace can bring. We're going to say more in a minute, um, but um, invite you to pray with me. Father, um, thank you that your word is quick and your word is powerful, and that your word transforms even the hardest of hearts. We thank you for using your word and the people um, contained in your word.
big time. They have parades and celebrations, and there's kids and adults, and they're waving palm branches, kind of like what we saw in that opening video. And they're shouting things like, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. Blessed is the Most High. It really would have been akin um, to like a Super Bowl parade, honestly. So when the team comes home and they walk out the city streets, that's how crazy it was, you see, because all of the Jews were returning to Jerusalem for Passover, and they thought that Jesus was their coming king, a king like David, like his ancestor David. And they were so excited. Oh, my goodness, they were so excited because they were finally going to be free of their oppressors, of the Romans, who were also coming into the city that day because on the opposite side where Jesus made his triumphant entry, Pilate, who was a Roman governor, was also making an entry on the other side of the city, and they were establishing a presence um, because historically, maybe the Jews during some of their festivals and celebrations, they might have been emboldened to try to rise up against the government, and the Romans weren't having it. They were tough. didn't mess with them because they would destroy you, period. Kind of like how David used to when he would go to battle. So they were really excited because they thought that Jesus was their coming king, like David. So the shouts of that day, Hosanna, Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was really an exciting time. But do you remember what Job taught us all throughout the Life of David series? That every attempt on David's life, whether it was to cause him to sin or literally to have him killed, was Satan trying to stop David from producing the one true Messiah. He's not done. And we know today isn't that day, but we don't get to be together on Friday. So we want to talk about Palm Sunday to Good Friday and the difference between those years. It was the first thing that jumped out at me because how do you go? How do you go from Hosanna and excitement? Scripture tells us the city was in turmoil. The Pharisees told Jesus to shut his people up, and he said, "I can't if I do because everything in the world has been waiting for this moment." And an animate rock will cry out. That is how excited people were. Just to give you a picture, they were excited four short days later too. Jesus was God. 
He said he was a blasphemer. He's a liar. So you have those blasphemous things, but then you also have the political. You can't separate out the politics. Like I said, the Romans were there, and the, the uh, religious leaders, the Jews, they were really afraid that because so many people, let me say it one more time, they were so excited on Palm Sunday, making such a noise, that the Jews were afraid that the Romans would move quick and hard to destroy that nation. So when they gathered together and they plotted one of the religious high priests, Caiaphas, he said, it would be better for one man to die than to risk the entire nation. But what about the people that went from Sunday to Friday? <coughs> Scripture says they were spellbound by Jesus' teachings. But yet by Friday, they were yelling this. Is it because Jesus wasn't the kind of king that they expected? They really wanted, if you dig into the word, into the history, they wanted to be free. And Jesus didn't do that. People are fickle. But they also supported their religious leaders when they said crucify him. People said crucify him because in their eyes, their religious leaders were their real leaders, not the Romans. And so they did. Jesus stood trial several times, faced more horror and shame than any of us could ever imagine. You don't need to watch a movie to see that. It gives you an idea. After all of that, they forced him to carry the very tool that would kill him eventually, back past all the people on the streets, the same people probably who were Hosanna, crucify him from one to the other. It would have been horrible and excruciating. Isaiah 53, 3, 4, 3 and 4 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows, yet we consider him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. See, that's what it's all about. God so loved the world that he sent his only son that we wouldn't be separated by eternity, we would be together for eternity. You see, we are sinful. And God and sin don't get along. They cannot be together. So because God so loved the world, by his wounds we are healed. No matter where you are, and whatever you believe, or whatever you're doing in your life, because it's all a mess, or all kind of messy, you have been healed by that act. Of love. So as you go into this week, remember, there is sorrow. I have a hard time saying Good Friday. There is sorrow. There is sorrow for him. There is sorrow for us. And we invite you to, to move into this time, this end of Lent, of searching, this end of Holy Week, to remember there is victory. But the victory came.